Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LuckyLandSlots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to True Crime, the podcast that helps you find new, emerging, and undiscovered true crime podcasts. I'm Greg, the host and curator of True Crime. If you like today's episode, make sure to check out the episode description for links to subscribe. Today's episode is from Nopeville. Your tour guides, Jen and Christine, lead you on tours through the city of Nopeville, a city filled with all the terrifying and horrible things that make you say nope. All right, let's get this show started. Begin. Down this road is a small city once thriving and full of life, but now desolate and abandoned. Well, abandoned save for the horrors rumored to reside within, which I presume is why you're here. Now there's nothing wrong with a little morbid curiosity, but please remember to stay close to your guides. We wouldn't want anyone to get left behind now. <laughs> Oh boy, oh boy, it's another tour of Nopeville. Welcome, everybody. This is our lovely little city filled with all the scary things that make you say nope. Nope. And we're your tour guides. I'm Jen. And I'm Christine. And let's kick this tour off with a five-star review. Yay. (laughs) So this one's from Derelict88. They say, first stop. Nopeville finds the perfect balance between entertainment, information, and darkness. It's an easy listen across the world of the macabre that's also a ton of fun. You can tell the hosts are having a blast, too. Give this a listen and subscribe now. Thanks, Derelict. That's a clever name, too. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And today's tour, we're going to be talking about serial killers with dumb names. Yep, with silly names that don't fit the awful crimes they committed. Nope. All right, so it's... January 27th, 1974, and here we sit in a well-known gay bar in San Francisco, watching a man as he's taking in the sights and having a drink. It's late at night, so maybe he's here to unwind after a long day at work, or he's looking for a fling for the night, or perhaps he's hoping to find something more meaningful. It's a nice night, everyone seems to be enjoying themselves. Oh, and look, someone has even decided to approach our late-night patron. And, is that a sketch of the man this stranger is showing him? That's so sweet. Ah, there the lovebirds go. Let's just let them have their moment wherever it is they decide to go. Nearly 2 a.m. now, and 911 dispatch is getting a call. Yes, I believe there might be a dead person on the beach at 
uh, right across from uh, Uloa Street, Uloa Street. Uh, if you follow the street right down to the water. I was walking along there and I saw somebody lying there, but I didn't want to get too close because, you know, and that was it the person never identified themselves and when police arrived at ocean beach they found a body on the beach, just like the caller had said, nearly getting swept away by the waves. When they dragged the body up the sand, they saw that the balding, heavy-set, 50-something man was covered in stab wounds. 17 in total, all over his body, including his hands, which indicated that this man did not go down without a fight. As it turned out, this man's name was Gerald Cavanaugh, but it took the police a few days to discover this, as he'd had no ID on him. What's been able to be pieced together about poor Gerald's life is that he was born in Montreal, Canada back in 1923. He apparently left home when he was still fairly young, and even served nearly two years in the U.S. Army. It's surmised that he moved to the Haight-Ashbury area in San Francisco at some point to be able to live his life more freely than if he'd remained with his very Catholic family in Canada, though he would visit his mother once a year until she died in 1967. At that point, he stopped going to Canada. Mm. So unfortunately, there was a perfect storm of circumstances that allowed this killer to operate in the manner that he did, as there were a number of other more pressing matters for the police to devote their attention to, such as the Zodiac Killer and the Zebra Killers running amok. Yeah, the 70s. It's the decade of serial killers. No kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And people wonder why we all lock our doors now and never answer the door or the phone. (laughs) (laughs) The phone especially for mine. (laughs) Same. Also, the police weren't particularly concerned with a handful of gay men turning up missing now and then. To put it in more perspective, Ron Huberman, the first openly gay investigator within the district attorney's office, had this to say, quote, If gay men were being assaulted for being gay or robbed, the cops thought gay men had it coming to them, much as they thought women had it coming when sexual assaults happened to them. Jeez. The example that I continually get from cops is, I can't believe you would just walk into a bar and take somebody home. I mean... Everybody does that. Yeah, straight people do. Yeah. He also had this quote. People were getting mugged. People were getting harassed. People were getting beaten. And the doodler took it to another level in that he was killing people and getting away with it. Because first of all, the police didn't, to be honest with you, care. End quote. Yeah. The doodler. This is the moniker that was given to a man that was viciously stabbing men he'd meet in gay bars and seduce with his doodles of them. What a doodle. (laughs) It's like, hey, I drew this picture of you. Oh my God, you're so hot. Let's go home together. Oh, I have a comment about that. (laughs) (laughs) And think about it. It's a decent method of catching people off guard in a setting where you're open to the possibilities, but also cautious of who you give an opportunity to in the first place. I mean, it's unique. It is unique. Rather than being like, hey, here's my number. You're like, hey, I drew this picture of you. (laughs) So romantic. An Associated Press activist, Cleve Jones, summed it up well with this quote. Quote, Imagine you're out at a club having a drink and someone hands you a sketch they've done of you. I can't think of a more disarming ploy to gain someone's trust. End quote. True. Now, of course, these days, we'd look at that and the creep factor would amp up to like a hundred because clearly this person has been watching you for long enough to draw you. It depends on if you have like a mutual <laughs> feeling for this person. I think 
Wong Fu Productions did a really funny video on if the person's a creep or if the person's romantic. Mm. And it just depends on like your perspective. Like if you have feelings for that person, it's romantic. If you don't have feelings for that person, it's creepy. That's true. Yeah. If they walk <laughs> up to you and they're not your type. They could do the same exact thing. Yeah. Mm. But of course, in the 70s, they didn't have true crime podcasts like we do to take away <laughs> all the trust that we have in strangers, especially in bars. You're welcome. <laughs> So currently, we have one man stabbed to death on a beach and a general public and police force who doesn't much care, but sadly, he won't be the only one dead. Hmm. Next, we have a man that, if given the chance to live out his days, I think could have been a spectacular star. Mm-hmm. 27-year-old Joseph J. Stevens was a rising star in certain circles performing hilarious stand-up routines and singing in a spectacular honey-sweet voice, all while dressed in drag, looking just as gorgeous as any woman. Oh, wow. I know, I get super jealous of how they do their makeup. I'm like, how? How? Yeah. How his picture that? is spectacular. He, you wouldn't know <laughs> yeah. from like the neck up. He had been named the summer replacement at Finocchio's, which had become at that time a popular hangout among the gay crowd. Mm-hmm. His sister recalled to a San Francisco Chronicle journalist that he did a terrific Julie Andrews and that his voice was like electric honey. Mm. Quote, he was very talented, very, very talented. And again, gorgeous. Oh my, we had such fun together making up little shows while he was growing up and then later on in the clubs. I mean... He was a fantastic actor, and oh, could he sing, end quote. Mm. She said that sometimes he would do his routine solo, and even in a trio of which she was a part as the female relief, and they would call themselves the Wonder Sisters. (laughs) Sadly, on June 25th, almost five months to the day from the first victim, Jay would be found dead in the bushes at Golden Gate Park. Mm. He had been stabbed five times and was discovered this time by a family out for a walk with their dogs. Jeez. In a horrific turn of events, apparently about three months after Jay was found dead, one of his sisters, Alma Teresa Stevens, snapped and claimed that evil spirits had emerged from his murder. Okay. It seems that this caused her to dismember her mother what? and burn her in the family fireplace and then attack her sister with a sledgehammer to the head. What the fuck? Yeah. So you just take one tragedy and then make more? Yep. Jeez. Stack it all on. Alma was then institutionalized, and apparently the sister that was hit in the head with the sledgehammer survived the attack Mm. and had been the one to share heartwarming stories of their brother with the Chronicle. Mm. Anyway, not even a month later this time, on July 7th, Klaus Christman was discovered by a woman out walking her dog. Talba Weiss had noticed her dog start running, so she followed, and then she happened upon the body by the beach at the foot of Lincoln Way. Mm. In an interview, she said, quote, I knew something was wrong. I saw a man laying there and he wasn't moving. I knew he was dead, end quote. So she returned home to phone the police. Mm-hmm. One detective claimed that this had been one of the most vicious stabbings he'd ever seen as Klaus was found with his throat slashed in three places <gasps> and at least 15 stab wounds. Jeez. Yeah. At this point, a report in the Sentinel said, quote, Police are aware of the similarities between the murder of Mr. Christman and the stabbing of Gerald Cavanaugh last January. There also appear to be similarities between these two stabbings and the murder of Jay Stevens, whose body was found stabbed front and back at Stowe Lake, June 25th. Oh, Stowe Lake. Yep. The place is haunted. Mm-hmm. And apparently Jay's there too. Hmm. All apparently involved the victim meeting someone who suggested driving to a remote area as the beach or Golden Gate Park. All three were viciously stabbed front and back. All three were stripped of identification and property. 
end quote. Mm. Klaus was a 31-year-old German national with a wife and two kids, but who had been staying with some friends in San Francisco for about three months before he was murdered. His body was sent back to Germany for burial, unlike Gerald, whose body remains in San Francisco and looks to rarely be visited. Mm. I want to note here that of the families of these men, only the one sister of Jay and a niece and great-nephew of Gerald's would even speak with anyone about them. So activity connected to the doodler goes quiet for nearly a year, but unfortunately... He wasn't finished. Mm-hmm. On May 12th, 1975, 32-year-old Frederick Capen was found on the beach behind a dune somewhere between Vicente and Aloha, having been dragged about 20 feet as evidenced by Mark in the sand. Mm. There weren't any details on how many times he may have been stabbed, but the coroner's report listed the cause of death as, quote, stab wounds of the aorta and heart, end quote. Mm-hmm. Because he had been a registered nurse, his identification was much easier than the others, and it seems that he had been living with his grandparents while he went to school and had a sister in Washington. He had also apparently been a medical corpsman in the Navy and had received, quote, a commendation medal for saving four men under fire in the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. According to his obituary. Mm -hmm. Nearly a month later, the last victim that police have pretty confidently linked to the doodler was found. The oldest one so far, 66-year-old Harold Goldberg, was discovered by a hiker on a Lincoln Park golf course on June 4th, 1975, nearly two weeks after he'd been murdered, as evidenced by the maggots on his face. Oh, jeez. All that really seems to be known about him is that he was a Swedish sailor who stopped in quite a few harbors between June 1930 and July 1940 before he became a naturalized U.S. citizen on August 15th, 1955. Mm -hmm. About five months after this final murder, a composite sketch of the doodler was put out by the police using bits and pieces of information gleaned from other people at the bars. They determined that he was black, slim, about 5'10 to 6 feet tall, and somewhere between 19 and 25 years old. Mm -hmm. Other pieces of evidence made police feel fairly confident that he was a man with a quiet and serious personality, possibly with an upper middle class education, which would make him above average in intelligence. Mm -hmm. One witness apparently informed police that he was studying commercial art, which I suppose makes some kind of sense since his MO involved doodles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) However... Again, with so much discrimination against the LGBTQ community in these days, people that had survived attacks were more reluctant to come forward with any useful information for fear of being outed and losing their jobs or families. Oh, wow. One article I read made mention of an L.A. man who had taken a man home that had happened to look a lot like the man in the composite sketch Mm -hmm. and was about to go to bed with him when a knife fell out of the man's coat. So he changed his mind. Good job. (laughs) All of the articles I read note that there are at least three known survivors of the doodler that would never come forward to testify. Hmm. One was a European diplomat in the States who had run into the doodler in a restaurant late one night and had been asked if he had any cocaine. (laughs) When the two retired to the diplomat's apartment, the diplomat was stabbed six times and apparently survived the attack. Wow. The other two were some kind of nationally known entertainer and a well-known San Francisco figure. Mm -hmm. So high profile people who, like you said, don't want to lose their jobs. Right. And to this day, people still don't know who those people were. Uh, The Mm -hmm. police, I'm sure, know. But the police had found and interrogated a number of suspects and even had one that seemed really good for it. But to this day, the murders remain unsolved. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. They had once picked up a man that fit the composite fairly well and had walked into a bar with a sketchbook and a concealed butcher knife and offered to sketch patrons. Mm-hmm. He was picked up, booked on the concealed weapon, and charged with aggravated assault after he attacked homicide detectives during interrogation. <laughs> Unfortunately, court testimony by the survivors would have been needed at the time to identify the man as the culprit, but no one was coming forward. Oh my god. Harvey Milk had this to say about the hesitation, quote, I can understand their position. I respect the pressure society has put on them. They have to stay in the closet, end quote. Yeah. That's sad. It really is. I, 
I would like to hope that they could come out now if the man was located again, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Or if those people are even still around. I feel like at least him being 19 to 25 in the 70s, he'd still be around if he didn't die of some other cause. Yeah, he's likely around 66 years old at this yeah. point. If he was if he was 25, he'd be around 66, as old as his oldest victim. Yeah, but then these other victims might have been a little older given their job and c- career yeah. and stuff. Yeah, for the most part, the people he was going after were early 30s, mm-hmm. late 20s. Mm. But then there was the one 66-year-old, so who knows? He just yeah. goes after whoever goes home with him, I guess. Yeah, and we don't know the... The victims who won't come forward. So. Right. As of early 2019, police have once more started trying to solve this cold case, bolstered by the successful identification of the Golden State Killer recently. Yeah. They hope to achieve the same result now with the doodler. Hope so. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. While the five men I named off are the ones that the police feel most comfortable linking with the doodler, it's believed that he may have been responsible for as many as 14 other murders in the area. Ooh. Yeah. Shit. Police re-released the composite sketch from the 1970s and have added a new time-lapse sketch of what he may look like today in the hopes of finally being able to catch this man. Mm -hmm. They're also offering a $100,000 reward for any information that can lead to the successful arrest of the serial killer whom they believe would still be alive today and potentially the same age as his oldest known victim, as I said before. Mm Mm-hmm. So if any of you tourists out there have any information on this man that could help police finally give the victim some justice, call the San Francisco police. Let's not let this case continue to stay hidden in the shadows for as long as it has. That is all I have on the doodler. And we'll be posting those sketches. Yeah, one of the articles I have has the sketches plus the phone number for the police. Yeah, so we'll post those on our social media and our website. So if you know or have any leads. Or you know somebody who knows. All right, so here's another dumb named serial killer whose <laughs> heinous acts do not reflect what he's called. Mm. So this is the weepy-voiced killer. Oh, so threatening. <laughs> I'm sure he is, but his, his yeah. name is not. Mm-mm. In the early 1980s, Minnesota law enforcement received a string of strange phone calls placed by a man with a high-pitched voice seemingly confessing to gruesomely attacking young women. Oh. This baffled police since at first glance the calls seemed to be a prank. However, some phone calls began to reveal details about the attacks that only the person responsible would know. Mm. This man was later found to be Paul Michael Stefani. Paul Michael Stefani was born on September 8, 1944, and grew up in Austin, Minnesota with his mother, stepfather, and nine other siblings, of which he was the second born. Holy shit. He claimed that growing up, his stepfather was abusive towards him and his siblings. If anyone acted up, his stepfather would smack them on the head and they would go flying down the stairs. Oh, man. He was also raised as a devout Catholic. Hmm. In an effort to make it on his own, shortly after graduating high school, he moved to St. Paul, but struggled to keep a steady job. During his lifetime, he was married and had a daughter, but he ended up divorcing his wife and abandoning both of them. Oh, shit. One investigator said he also had a girlfriend who ended up going back to her home country of Syria due to an arranged marriage she had there, which left a deep emotional wound in Stefani. Oh, boo-hoo. Right. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
At 3 a.m. on January 1st, 1981, police received a phone call from a weepy-voiced man claiming that a woman was hurt badly at the Malmberg Manufacturing Company and Machine Shop and pleaded with the police to send an ambulance. Mm. And the voice, super creepy. It's is weepy, but he's like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can look it up on YouTube, but there are phone calls you can listen to. When first responders arrived to the scene, they found 20-year-old college student Karen Potak. She had been stripped naked and was lying in a snowbank, severely beaten with a blunt force object to the head and neck. Mm. Police had found buttons that were torn from her blouse 50 feet away from where she was found. Jesus. The attack was so aggressive that part of her brain had been exposed. Despite her injuries, she was alive, but just barely. Oh, wow. She was rushed to the hospital, but when she recovered, she was left with memory loss and brain damage and was unable to remember anything about the attack. Oh, shit. At this point in time, there were no leads into who the assailant was. That night, she was out celebrating New Year's with her sisters. However, she had left early in a bad mood. Mm. Her sisters assumed she was going straight home. However, when they arrived back at their house, she was nowhere to be found. Mm Mm-hmm. Then they received the devastating news that she was in the hospital after being attacked. Then in June 1981, three teenagers who were playing in a field near a freeway construction site came upon a gruesome discovery. They found the body of a young woman lying face down in the bushes. She had puncture wounds to her chest, abdomen, and inner thighs. Jesus. It was later discovered that these wounds were made by an ice pick and that she was stabbed 61 times. Oh my god. With an ice pick. Mm-hmm. Police found a locker key that belonged to a bus station in St. Paul inside of her jeans pocket. When they opened the locker, they found bags that belonged to the victim and were able to identify her. No. She was 18-year-old Kimberly Compton. She had just graduated high school and wanted to move to St. Paul to find a job. The day she was killed was also the same day she just moved to St. Paul. No. She was killed just mere hours after she stepped off the bus from her small hometown. No. In the Oxygen show, Mark of a Killer, her cousin was interviewed, and he said that she was outgoing, friendly, and trusting, and she had that typical small-town kid personality. Mm-hmm. So she just steps off a bus, meets somebody, is super friendly, and then yeah, that ended her life. Very hopeful and optimistic. And mm-hmm. <sighs> Two days later, police get a mysterious phone call from a man with a high-pitched voice. It was similar to that which they received just five months prior. However, at this time, the connection wasn't made. The man said, quote... Will you find me? I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. I don't know why I had to stab her. I'm so upset about it. And, and this whole time, he's super weak. But he's like, he's like, will you find me? I can't stop myself. I can't do it. Like, just look it up on YouTube. You can, like, it's super creepy. I like your version better, though. <laughs> As I mentioned before, police assumed this was a prank at the time. However, he continued to say, quote, I stabbed somebody with an ice pick, hmm. end quote. That's when they knew this wasn't a prank call. The detail about the murder weapon was one that was never released to the public, so only the killer would know how Kimberly was attacked. Mm-hmm. He also said that new- newspaper accounts of the murder was inaccurate. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> Fucking ego. Yeah. They tried to trace the call, however, the call was too short for them to do so. However, hours later, they received another phone call by the same weepy-voiced man saying, quote, Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry of what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'll try not to kill anybody else. End quote. Oh, okay. That that sounds reasonable. Sounds like, right? you know, we shouldn't arrest you and we'll, we'll go ahead and let you go. You know, as long as you never do it again, as long as you promise it's okay. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's, that's mm-hmm. how the justice system works and all that. Right. <sighs> this time the phone call was long enough for police to trace it. They traced it to a phone booth at the same bus station where Kimberly Compton was last seen before she died. Mm. Investigators attempted to dust the phone booth for prints. However, they didn't get anything useful considering the phone had been used by so many people. Yeah, that's... 
Kind of a needle in a haystack situation. Yeah. Police set up surveillance of the phone booth, and for days they staked it out, hoping the killer would return to make another phone call. They came up empty. It was at this time that they listened to a backlog of recorded calls, and they found the same weepy voice had called when Karen Potak was attacked five months prior. Mm-hmm. They sent the recordings to the University of Michigan for analysis. However, nothing could be made of it. Desperate, authorities released clippings of the recordings to the media in hopes that someone would come forward who could recognize the voice since it was so unique. Mm-hmm. 150 people had called in saying they knew the voice, but police were still unable to positively identify the killer. Uh. Two months later, a domestic dispute was called in where Alan Lopez was holding his parents and his sister hostage. In his phone call to police, he said he was responsible for the murder of Kimberly Compton in the severe attack on Karen Post. When police charged into the home to apprehend Lopez, they discovered he had already killed his family. Oh my god. He was arrested for murder, but police had to confirm whether or not he was the man behind the weepy voice calls. He had a history of violence and mental illness, so it was possible. However, before they could confirm or deny Lopez as the weepy voice killer, he killed himself six months later. Oh shit. Six more months go by and there's no communication from the weepy voice killer, so police begin to believe that maybe he really was the guy. Yeah. But in August of 1982, a paper boy was riding along the Mississippi River in Minneapolis when he sees the body of a woman in the bushes. She appeared to have been severely beaten and stabbed with a circular object like an ice pick or a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. There was no ID found on her, but she was later identified as 40-year-old nurse Barbara Simons when a postal worker had found her purse in a mailbox at the same bus station Kimberly Compton was last seen. So this dude's just taking these people's stuff and just stowing it. Well, I guess the other girl. So yeah, so Kimberly's was already in the locker and right. then for Barbara, he took her purse and just put it in a mailbox. Yeah. So no, when they found her body, nobody can identify her right away. Like, uh, if you're not connected, why does it matter? I don't know. I've always wondered that. Like, it doesn't really hinder the police much in terms of finding yeah, you. Yeah, like, if you're just strangers that you met on the street, like, there's no yeah. previous connection. Yeah, Yeah, like, unless they she was your neighbor or your, you hang out at a bar frequently or something, like, I don't mm-hmm. get it. It just hinders the investigation further and a better chance for him to get away or something, probably. Yeah, because the doodler did the same thing. He would take all their ID off of them, but... Yeah, it's probably just like, so they don't look at that evidence yet. Yeah. They're going to spend that time figuring out who this person is to yeah. see if there's a connection. Mm-hmm. I guess that makes sense. It just extends the investigation further. So Right. Then the phone lines at the police station ring and the eerie, weepy voice is on the other line. He said, quote, I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first in St. Paul. I've killed more people. I'll never make it into heaven. Unquote. <sighs> Okay. Friends of Barbara Simons had said she had gone to the Hexagon Bar the night she was killed. When investigators went there to interview the staff, it was revealed she had gone home with a white male. One waitress remembered Barbara saying, quote, I hope this guy's okay because I just need a ride home. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Oh. Police get a description of the man she left with from witnesses. He was said to be a white male in his 40s, about six feet tall, muscular build with a mustache. This description fit the mugshots of over 150 people. However, police were able to narrow it down to eight. That's interesting that 150 calls came in about the voice and then 150 people matched the sketch. I know. I noticed that similarity too. And I'm just like, are they the same 150 people? <laughs> right. They all look the same and have the same voice? What? <laughs> 
When they showed the mugshots to staff at the bar, they all pointed out one man, Paul Michael Stefani. The bartender were sure it was him because he remembered how odd the man was when he was sitting at the end of the bar making strange faces at the bartender, almost as if sizing him up. What the fuck? So the bartender was like, this is weird. And obviously when someone's acting weird, like it sticks in your brain and you remember what he looks like. Right, you're gonna notice. Yeah. Police dig up his background and find that Stefani was once arrested for aggravated assault in 1976 and had a past of run-ins with the law. It was also discovered that he was employed at the manufacturing company where Karen Potak was attacked. Mm. They then started to stake out Stefani's apartment. One night, he left his apartment and police tried to follow him, but they lost him. Then, a few hours later that same night, an emergency call was placed by a witness who said a woman needed an ambulance after being stabbed with what looked like a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. This man was Douglas Panning. He ran out of his apartment when he heard a commotion and a woman screaming outside. When he tried to intervene, the attacker turned to him and threatened to attack him. Douglas ran down the street back to his apartment and the man got into his car and drove away. The victim was 19-year-old Denise Williams. She was a sex worker and the man who attacked her was a client who had paid her for her services. She said after they were finished, the man was going to take her home, but instead he took her to a dark alley. He then pulled a screwdriver out of his glove compartment and started to stab Denise. Mm -hmm. She managed to find a glass soda bottle in the back seat of his car and smash it against the man's head, cutting his face and hands in the process. She was able to get out of the car, however, the man got on top of her and started stabbing her more. Oh, I was about to say, go girl. Yeah. I mean, still go girl. <laughs> yeah. Going down swinging. Right. By the time Douglas was able to intervene, Denise was stabbed 15 times. Oh, shit. She was taken to the hospital and survived the attack. Oh, good. Police showed her a couple mug shots and she was able to positively identify her attacker, Paul Michael Stefani. Oh, surprise, surprise. Shortly after, Stefani returned to his apartment where he placed an emergency call requesting <laughs> medical assistance since he was bleeding profusely from the attack. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> when first responders arrived, he said he was the victim of a robbery. Oh, my God. Yep. At first, his voice was low, so right. not sus, right? Yeah. However, when the detective showed him the case file containing photos of Karen Potak, Kimberly Compton, and Barbara Simons, he jumped out of his chair and his voice changed to a high-pitched, weepy tone, similar to the recordings, saying, quote, you're not pitting those on me. Okay. The detective said he thought it so strange how he could literally see someone's personality change so quickly right in front of him. Mm-hmm. They knew they finally caught their weepy voiced killer. However, prosecutors didn't have enough evidence to link him to the attack of Karen Potak or the murder of Kimberly Compton, since all they had were the voice recordings. So they decided to pursue a case against Stefani regarding the murder of Barbara Simons and the attack of Denise Williams, since they had eyewitness accounts positively identifying Stefani with the crimes, even though they also knew that he was responsible for Karen Potak and Kimberly Compton as well. Oh, so didn't he literally admit to those murders in those recordings? That's... Not really hard evidence. But it's a confession. He's not confessing in front of you. <laughs> like, you can't, you can't take that. In a court of law, it would get dismissed, and then, like, the case would be thrown out, and then he won't be able to be tried again for double jeopardy. <laughs> That's why they do that shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you can't use this. Yeah. <laughs> so they knew for sure that they, that they could at least get him on Barbara Simons and Denise Williams, so they were going to try for that. Yeah, at least they had people that they could try him for, but... Yeah. <sighs> He pleaded not guilty. (laughs) Of course he did. During the trial, they played the recordings for Stefani's sister, his ex-wife, and a woman who had lived with him previously, who all identified the voice as Stefani's. Mm -hmm. 
Paul Stefani was sentenced to 18 years for the attempted murder of Denise Williams and an additional 40 years for the murder of Barbara Simons. Nice. It wasn't until 1997 where he decided to confess to his crimes after being diagnosed with terminal skin cancer. <laughs> he reached out to police and requested that they go to the cemetery where his mother was buried, take a picture of her headstone, and show him, and then he would tell them everything he knows. What? Yep. It was just... He contacted police and said, hey, I'll tell you everything I did if you go do this for me. I don't know. <laughs> That's so fucking weird. I know. Police did as he requested, and Stefani kept up his end of the deal, detailing his crimes. He confessed to attacking Karen Potak and killing Kimberly Compton, in addition to killing Barbara Simons and attacking Denise Williams. He even admitted to a third murder that was never reported and whose cause of death was undetermined. This victim was 33-year-old school teacher Kathleen Greening. She was found dead in her tub in July of 1982, and Stefani said he had drowned her. At the time, her husband was the prime suspect, although no one was ever charged with her murder. Stefani had details that only the killer would know, such as the layout of her apartment, and that he had put her purse in the mailbox, similar to what he had done with Barbara Simon's purse. What baffled police about this murder was that he never called it in as the weepy voice killer. Mm-hmm. When investigators went through Kathleen Greening's address book, they found a Paul S. along with his phone number, finding the link between her and Stefani. Yeah, so he's just like, well, I'm connected to this one. Better not call. That's probably what happened because this I happened in so. 1982 and he did the first murder in 1981. So it's not like he didn't already have an MO at that point. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so. he was just like, shit, they can link me to this one. I'm just yeah. not going to tell them. During the interview where he told all in 1997, the reporter asked him why he did what he did, and he said he didn't know why and that he heard voices all the time telling him, Paul, it's time to kill. What? He said it's not like he believed he didn't deserve to go to hell, and that if someone killed his sister, he'd say that person deserved to go to hell, but he said ultimately it's up to God to decide, bringing light to his Catholic upbringing. He said his mother always told him, quote, if something hurts you, go to God, end quote. A year after this tell-all on June 12, 1998, Paul Michael Stefani, the weepy voice killer, died from cancer inside the Oak Park Heights Maximum Security Prison Infirmary. Good. So that is the weepy voice killer and all of his victims got justice because he confessed to it as probably some sort of reprieve and hopefully he can get into heaven by confessing his sins. Oh yeah, that's 100% what it was. But murder is a mortal sin and if you commit a mortal sin, you don't get into heaven. Yeah, you don't get to just, you know, confess and be like, okay, it's gone. That's now wiped slate clean. I'm remorseful. Let me into heaven. No, thou shalt not kill is literally in the Ten Commandments. Yeah, it's it's across all versions of religion as far as I'm aware. <laughs> Thou shalt yeah. not kill. Mm -hmm. But speaking of motives, they speculate that the doodler's motive is that he has issues with sex, unsurprisingly, but also mm -hmm. that he may very well be heterosexual. And just, it's like hate crimes against right. he has LGBTQ. A thing against gay people, yeah, because I guess, or gay men, rather, because obviously he wasn't murdering lesbians. Yeah. But I think in one interview, someone had said that a person they think might have been the doodler said something about you guys are all the same. But I don't know how concrete that can possibly be if they don't know who the doodler was. I feel like a lot of the serial killers that had homophobic tendencies were also gay themselves. Right. Like Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. And they're ashamed of and it. And John Wayne Casey. Yeah. So they take out their shame and aggression on other people who are probably like confident in who they are like how can you just flaunt it yeah exactly you're for, especially somebody like jay stevens yeah. yeah someone like jay stevens who was you know very openly dressing in drag whether or not he was trans we'll yeah. never know but yeah sad 
I hope they find him. I really do. Yeah, it seems like it seems like something they can solve. Yeah, I but, I, I don't know. know that they have anything that could potentially have DNA on it unless somebody can find somebody with his face. But as far as I'm aware, none of his doodles were ever recovered from anywhere. And I read in maybe one article that he would have sex with the people before he murdered them. But if that was the case, they would have DNA and only one of them was found with his fly down and no underwear. Mm-hmm. It didn't. There was never anything that said that they were found naked. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But it's probably just at the time police didn't investigate. They didn't care. And evidence was probably destroyed or tampered with. So. Yeah. Or they just didn't collect it. Or, I mean, a lot of them were found on the beach. Yeah. Who knows how much of it got washed away. Mm -hmm. But anyway, if you enjoyed today's tour, please leave us a review on wherever you booked your tour. Reviews help us grow and reach more listeners so we can provide you with more tours. Remember to visit our website at nopevillepodcast.com where you will have access to our show notes and anything we referenced in today's tour. And you'll be able to find and follow us on all our social media for updates, polls, events, or just interacting with us, which is Nopevillecast on Twitter or Podcast on Instagram. Instagram, and Facebook. If you want to be a part of our campfire stories, which are stories you submit for us to read, either fiction or nonfiction, you can submit them through the contact us form on our website and select campfire stories. Or you can send an email to us at notebillpodcast at gmail.com and be sure to write campfire stories in your subject line so we know what you're emailing us about. No tour is complete without first stopping by the gift shop before you leave. Go ahead and click on the gift shop on our website and be sure to pick up a souvenir for yourself and a loved one. And last but not least, gratuity isn't required but sure is appreciated. Visit our Patreon to see how you can support us and get some awesome rewards in return or check us out and buy me a coffee and buy us a coffee yeah and we will see you all in the next tour bye excellent i see most of you returned and relatively unscathed bravo i hope you enjoyed your visit to noteville and look forward to seeing you again next time Thanks again for listening to True Crime by Indie Drop-In Network. If you would like to nominate a true crime podcast to be featured, just send me a tweet at Indie Drop-In. I'd also love to hear if one of our featured podcasts is now your favorite show. Indie Drop-In survives off ad revenue and listener donations. If you would like to contribute, please consider buying me a coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Indie Drop-In. If you look at the very bottom of the episode description, I put a link in there to make it really easy. Indie Drop-In has many other shows that you also might like. Just go to IndieDropIn.com. All right, see you next week.